In this hour, joining us is Brian Rosenwald. Brian is a fellow at Robert A. Fox Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania and also an instructor at Penn. He conducts research for the Slate podcast Whistle Stop and a book companion to the podcast. Brian works at the intersection of four disciplines, history, political science, media studies, and communications. Four of my favorites. Uh, Brian, uh, Brian, more than a pleasure uh, to, to have you with us. Brian Rosenwald. And I have to laugh. My crew put brain conducts. They called you brain and, you know, flipping the I and the A in your name. So uh, that's, uh, that, that's a good thing. Right? I'd like to be called the brain. Uh, Brian Rosenwald, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Leslie, it's great to be on with you. Um, let's talk about the conservatives and the conservative media's grip on uh, the GOP. Donald Trump talks even now. Maybe less people listening, but everybody in the press shows up, right? Uh, Ted Cruz says things, people in the press show up. Marco Rubio, more people are showing up. Jeb Bush can't get applause from an audience, never mind the cameras to show up. Uh, Let's let's talk about Ted Cruz and Donald Trump and the signs of conservative media's grip on uh, the GOP. Um, uh, First of all, you know, I've always said, and I am a liberal, feminist, Democrat, and a progressive, uh, that... The media is not liberal. People have been calling the liberal media. It was at one time, maybe in the 60s and the 70s. But in 2016, I don't think so. And I think that this election is proof that conservatives do have a uh, do uh, have a, a grip on the media and that the conservative media have a grip on the GOP. Who's got the tighter grip? Well, uh, you know, as the, the piece that uh, I wrote with Michael Smirconish on, the, uh, on CNN yesterday explains – a lot of it is about the language. You know, people have been listening to talk radio for three decades, and they've heard people screaming about socialists and feminazis and things like that. So when they hear it from Ted Cruz and they hear it from Donald Trump, it sounds familiar. Um, and their favorite hosts have been telling them for years and years and years, look, you don't need to compromise. Compromise is treason. Um, and so that when, when candidates say the same thing, they say, hey, this sounds good to me. So I, I think the power of the conservative media is, is very clear in this primary um, and only getting clearer. I, I agree with you 100%. This is a good piece, and uh, thank you for reminding me that you, Brian, wrote this, co-wrote this with Michael Smirconish. I know Michael. He's a good talk show host. I've seen him sometimes on CNN as well. And you guys wrote this piece for CNN entitled Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, Signs of Conservative Media's Grip uh, on GOP. Uh, would you say historically in your professional career, we've really never seen anything like this, these characters and the relationship uh, between the media and the characters and the puppetry, if you will, between the media and the puppets. Well, what's so unique about today's talk radio world is if you go back, there have always been conservative hosts going back to Father Coughlin in the 30s. But a lot of those hosts, they, they, they viewed themselves more as sermonizers, as preachers. Um, they, they were very serious, 15 minutes a week in the 60s or the 70s. The, the big change today is Today's conservative host is an entertainer. Their goals are fundamentally different than Paul Ryan's goals or Mitch McConnell's goals. They don't care about governance. They care about putting out the best show possible, having the largest audience possible in the best demographics, and charging the highest advertising rates. And you know what's entertaining, Leslie? Conflict. Conflict is entertaining. And hyperbolic language and, you know, all the stuff that is Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, that's what makes for great radio. And that's what these hosts have been doing for several decades. And what happened is they've gotten more and more powerful because the main organ of, of 
party competition anymore is primary elections in most places. And in primary elections, turnouts are low. The people who show up are the kinds of activists and passionate, you know, believers who are listening to conservative radio and watching Fox News and, you know, other conservative outlets. And those people are, you know, they, they hear the message every day and they've heard it for decades. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about this. And I, as a liberal talk show host, have been doing this, God almighty, since 1988 when I was 12. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I agree 100%. I have a lot more to say on this and a lot of questions to ask. Maybe you do as well, America. 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Brian Rosenwald's our guest. Follow him on Twitter at Brian Ross, B-R-I-A-N-R-O-S-1. And back with our guest, Brian Rosenwald, fellow at Robert A. Fox Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania and instructor at Penn. He co-wrote a great piece entitled Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, Signs of Conservative Media's Grip on GOP, written by him and Michael Smirconish, another talk show host. Brian, thank you uh, for holding and uh, welcome back. You know, one of the things that's always bothered me, and certainly after the Fairness Doctrine went bye-bye, we saw that change. But when I was starting out in talk radio in the late 80s, there was always, you know, more conservatives as host. There were more conservatives running the show, uh, white males especially, and there were more conservative listeners in talk radio. However, they would always have a liberal or two on the same station. They didn't have this uh, divide. You know, there'll be people that say to me, you don't have the ratings of Rush Limbaugh. And I'm like, well, we don't have 600 progressive talk stations out there because there was a time when there was a split between talk radio and there were the progressive stations and the conservative stations, such as a station with Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity and uh, Mark Levin, you know, isn't going to put somebody like me on, but back in the day, or Michael on, but back in the day, they would. And and I, I think what has also happened is that the American people aren't hearing, A, both sides of the story, and there's nobody refuting misinformation and lies out there. I mean, except for these fact-check websites, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know what is truth and, and, and what is just a bunch of hype. Yeah, Leslie, I think that's absolutely true. You know, more and more people live in echo chambers. As conservative and, and liberal outlets have proliferated, especially on the Internet, people are free. You know, the people who in maybe 1990 listened to a station that had you on, had Rush on, and then they watched the CBS Evening News at night or NBC, you know, pick your favorite station. Now they might watch Fox News, they might read Newsmax, and they might listen to Rush. They're, they're living in much more an echo chambers and, and silos where they don't get the opposite perspective, you know, and a lot of programmers decided along the way that, look, the only way we can do, the way to maximize our success is to have what they call format purity, which is essentially, hey, we wouldn't play a rock, you know, rock music on a country station, so why would we have a liberal on a conservative station? And that you now you just get a whole day of conservatives. And there really isn't any counter perspective for people to hear. And it's bad for democracy, quite frankly. 
I agree. Do you feel, and, and I think your piece is clear, that you and Michael also feel this is why we see um, such anger um, among the support out there? Because I don't, I, yes, I think people are angry, you know, but when you, when you look at the polls on Donald Trump's Muslim ban, proposed Muslim ban as an example, you know, what, half or more of Republicans agree with that. Shamefully, some Democrats do. Fortunately, most don't, and fortunately, most independent, centrist, moderates uh, side with uh, Democrats, so say the polls. And I say that just using that as such as an outlandish idea from a very outlandish character, and he is a character, uh, like he's running a reality show. Has talk radio helped, you know, certainly to put a Donald Trump in the lead? And in in that, can we also say that talk radio or the media has not only made a mockery of the political process, but is tearing it down? We've got two factors going. One is emotion makes for great radio. And the more emotional the the language and the proposals, you know, you start talking about the nuance of a bill, no matter, you know, or you can pick the policy area, whether it's trade, whether it's monetary policy, and it's going to put people to sleep. And so people, they they talk in evocative, emotional tones, and it feeds this kind of candidate because people are used to that language. Simultaneously, you know, you've got a lot of anger about what's going on in the country. And a lot of these hosts, again, their job isn't governance. And they don't want to explain or or get into the, the weeds of the fact that, look, we've got divided government. And the way the founders set up our system is such that it's almost impossible in, in a country that's this divided with a government that's divided for one party to just dominate and do whatever they want. And you've got politicians who've been making promises for years and years and years that they can't possibly implement. And the, the voters are angry, and the media reinforces their anger and says, look, the, the, you've gotten gypped, you've gotten lied to, you, you should fight back. And, and the result is that someone like Donald Trump sounds pretty good to a lot of people. And when we look at uh, these people, can we then say, we, we look back, you know, a few years ago, some people would say that a conservative talk show host, Laura Ingram, as an example, and um, other hosts, you know, were, resp- you know, were responsible uh, in the state of Virginia for Eric Cantor, you know, a, a strong incumbent not being reelected. Um, so are we then saying that talk radio especially has power in these elections, especially uh, in, in the House and the Senate? Absolutely. I mean, this is an argument that I put out there, and I'm going to have a book in a couple of years that explains this. But you've got, if you're talking about a presidential general election where each side spends a billion dollars, I'm not sure the talk radio or cable news or the blogosphere has that much of an impact. Because there's so many sources for information, and people are seeing it on Facebook. They're hearing talking about it with their friends. But when you get down to that House or Senate primary, where, first of all, people who are used to voting on a party line, now both candidates are from the same same party. They're not exactly sure. They don't know these people. They're not sure who the candidates are. They're not paying that much attention. They're busy every day, Leslie. They've got to worry about their families, and that's their jobs. And so they're not paying attention to what is going on in government. So you get into these primaries, and a host can make a huge amount of difference. You know, whereas 30 years ago, someone might have said, oh, I'm going to vote for Eric Cantor because that's the name I know. Now the host can say, look, this other guy, he's pure. He's the guy who is going to give you the policy that you want. Cantor is sort of a traitor. And, and, you know, Dave Bratt, who was opposing him, you might not have heard of him, but he's good people. 
And that has a lot of an impact because these hosts, you know, you, you've done it for years, you know it as well as anyone. These hosts are like friends to their listeners. Their listeners, some of these listeners spend more time a week with their favorite host than they do with their spouse. And, you know, that creates a powerful relationship so that when a host says, hey, I can, I'll vouch for this person, and says, hey, you might want to support this person and give them money and undermine the, the power that an incumbent naturally has from incumbency, it's powerful. It, it is powerful. You know, I remember years ago, Brian, uh, you know, and I, like I said, I've been doing talk radio uh, for, God, almost three decades, but um, I remember somebody once telling me, I believe it because Rush Limbaugh told me it was true. And if he says it's true, he, you know, it is true. And I found that, especially, you know, back in the day, and we're probably seeing that now. But followers of somebody like Rush who call themselves ditto heads aren't thinking for themselves. Do you think that's happening more and more? People are taking shortcuts. They're getting their news and sound bites. Uh, they're reading something quickly on their phone, and they're listening to somebody in a 15, 10 to 15-minute increment, and they're trusting because talk radio is so personality-driven what a talk show host is telling them to be true, uh, how a talk show host is telling them to feel, and uh, in doing it, and like I always say, we're not journalists, talk show hosts opine. We're not reporting facts. Uh, we're giving our opinion based on hopefully facts. And, and and do you think this is fanning those flames? And, and, you know, when you see those rallies with Trump and some of the th- outlandish things that are being said not only by him, but even by those in the audience. Absolutely. I mean, the, for the average, the average host is a friend to the listener in the way that, you know, you might listen to someone. If, if your best friend says something or your spouse or your sibling, you're, you're not going to go and say, you know what, let me interrogate this information. Let me go research and look it up. So when a host says something, it carries a lot of weight, and people are increasingly busy with responsibilities in day-to-day life. They don't follow politics that closely. So when a host says something, it has a huge impact, and realistically speaking, you know, it, you do much better on radio with, with black and white thinking and being clear and being strong. And nuance is boring. That The host doesn't want to spew lots of new nuance about a bill because they're going to bore their listeners. So they are shortcutting or simplifying things. They're not necessarily trying to lie on a lot of occasions, but they're putting their slant or their spin on something. They're taking a strong position, and it distorts things. Um, and their listeners and their, you know, viewers, when we're talking about cable television, are then going to these rallies, and they're, they're cheering ideas that fit the same mold. And it, it has made an angrier politics. It has made a more emotional politics and one that is much more adverse to compromise and getting things done. How do we combat that? How do we combat that with those like myself that are liberals that are progressives, that are Democrats. Our voices aren't being heard as much because the conservative media blocks us out. There are program directors out there who know that I, other liberals, are going to get them ratings. And talk about sound bites. When Air America crashed and burned, people said liberal talk radio uh, wouldn't be successful. Well, here I am, almost three decades, and I beat Rush Limbaugh in two markets. But you need somebody to have the guts, and no offense to a lot of program directors, who don't want to color outside the lines um, and you know, draw outside the box. And, and I say that because you know, it, it's, it's a business, and quite, quite frankly, there was a time where radio – there were – God, there, 
there were days when I was first syndicated where I had I had double digits, 10, 13% shares. People in Los Angeles on a local level, I know, fight over, you know, one to two. <laughs> and I, what I say, what I'm saying is that the political leaning of talk radio has actually hurt the business and the money of talk radio uh, somewhat because, you know, the money was spread out more, not just between liberals and conservatives, but between more stations. And why not have all of the pie and just instead of just a segment and a portion of it? Because in a sense, liberals have been relegated to. Um, you know, listening to uh, – uh, they can listen to radio, but for those markets where there aren't – and I can tell you there are people who call me. I'll give you an example. In the state of Alabama, you can't find me on a radio station, but they will listen to me other means. You know, tune in, iHeartRadio, Progressive Voices on our website, our stream, LeslieMarshallShow.com. But you know, it's, it's almost like a, why wouldn't the conservatives want the money – uh, and and the the ratings, the listenership of people who aren't like-minded. And by the way, it is the debate that people used to tune in for on talk radio, not the agreement and the preaching to the choir. Well, there's two factors. The first, as you point out, a lot of people in programming don't like to rock the boat. You know, there, there's much more risk in trying something new than going with the tried-and-true formula. You know the conservative radio is going to produce a profit, and so you go with that format. You don't want to try something new and take a risk, and a lot of the, the business metrics have made it so that it's a lot harder to take risks because the, you, you don't have the money to promote a new station or to promote a new format, so that that's made it harder. And, and the second thing is, you know, we, we do have all these different ways of communicating now, and part of the problem is that, that more and more the listeners and the viewers, they're only interested in hearing one perspective because they're angrier and they've heard these hosts saying the same things for decades, and they, they don't want to hear the, the liberal. But, you know, conflict produces the best radio. I've, I've had hosts, liberals and conservatives, tell me, look, I want nothing more than to get callers and guests from the opposite political perspective because it makes for great radio. So I'm not sure why someone wouldn't say, hey, let's try this. You know, we've tried everything else. We have all these different things. Let's see if it works because it has worked in a lot of local markets at various times. Again. How do we fight or do we say, look, the terrestrial radio is certainly not dead, but other sources of information are definitely gaining traction, especially with millennials. And we, you know, we see those millennials following Bernie, but we also see those millennials very involved in the Republican race. Uh, in other words, how do we get those green minds, <laughs> Brian? Well, I, I think some of it is it's just about putting out an interesting product and having someone realize that millennials are a lot less ideologically pure than their parents or their grandparents. Those people are interested in hearing multiple perspectives. Their own ideological leanings are a lot murkier. They, they may be very liberal on social issues, and on some economic issues they're a little bit more conservative or vice versa. And they're interested in both perspectives. And I think once someone sort of figures out how to package that and on what medium that they need to go to to reach those you know, potential listeners, I think you may see a change. But it's really about understanding that you're not going to capture that generation. That They're bored. They find one ideological perspective boring because there's nothing worse than knowing every day what the host is going to say before the host says it. What's the point of tuning in? I, no, I agree because it is so personality-driven. So then again, why aren't we seeing with the amount of conservative talk show hosts reach, you know, with having, you know, four or five hundred, six hundred stations that they can be on because they're conservative in nature? 
why aren't we seeing more and more states going from purple to red? We're seeing more and more states go from red to purple or purple to blue. Why, why do you think that? Is it a very limited amount of power that these hosts have um, over the minds of the voters, or is it the listeners don't actually vote? Well, what it comes down to is, in a lot of cases, they're preaching to the choir. That's why they have the most impact in a primary election. Once you get to a general election, for the average, you know, sort of moderate or slightly left of center, even slightly right of center person, those people aren't listening to conservative talk radio. They're not particularly influenced by it. And a lot of times, in fact, the process works almost in a perverse way for conservative hosts. They're successful in a primary. They get the pure candidate, but that candidate is much less likely to succeed in a general election. My, my favorite example, Delaware 2010 Senate race. You know, conservative talk goes after Mike Castle, who had been governor and House member for 20-plus years and was thought to be the favorite in the Senate race. They end up nominating Christine O'Donnell, who was a conservative activist. They, they help her raise money, and she gets crushed in the general election because Delaware is a blue state. Um, so sometimes the success in the primary works against them in a general election. Absolutely. Um, how much time do we have, guys? I don't want to get uh, up. We, we are out of time. We are out of time. All right, Brian, thank you for being with us today, and thank you for the great piece that you co-wrote with Michael Smirconish. Uh, we, Brian, like I said, is a fellow at Robert A. Fox Leadership Program at the University of Pennsylvania, instructor at Penn as well. Um, also, I want you to follow him on Twitter at Brian Ross one at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Ross, R-O-S-1. The website is BrianRosenwall.com, B-R-I-A-N-R-O-S-E-N-W-A-L. 